Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Mackie Musavi. Mackie is a transformational and executive coach who helps professionals who are unhappy despite their career successes. She provides high achievers with the tools to reprogram their mindset and transform their lives. She lives outside of Kansas City, and she's here to talk about her book, The High Achiever's Guide. Welcome, Mackie. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Something I'm always curious about is when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Well, you know, it's interesting. My biggest influence was somebody who was no longer alive. I was obsessed with the biography of Eleanor Roosevelt when I was in elementary school. And I think I read it about six times. I was really fascinated by how strong-willed she was and how if she had a conviction, no rules or expectations stood in the way of her doing what she believed was right. And that really stuck with me as something to aspire to myself. Can you think of an example when the reminder of how strong-willed she was and how she stuck to her principles served you in your early career? Yes, absolutely. So I believe, you know, when we're in our early careers, there's so many different things. We know, first of all, we're excited. So we think, oh, yay, you know, here I am. I've got this great job. These are the expectations that I'm learning. And we just really want to be validated that we're good enough and that we're good at our jobs. They made a great decision in hiring us, that kind of thing. And there were just little things from time to time where somebody might make a comment or I would see a policy or some kind of expectation in the workplace that just didn't sit well with me. And I would always have this internal debate around, okay, am I just supposed to sit here and absorb and play by these rules in order to be successful? Or do I have an opportunity to make a stand here and at least express that I don't like something? And, you know, I'll be really honest and say that I probably flip-flopped in the expression of that where early on I felt like, yep, absolutely. These are the things that need to be said. And I would speak up when I saw or felt something wasn't right. But then over time got beaten down a little bit because there was always a lot of feedback around, maybe you should soften your edges. Maybe you shouldn't say it that way. Sometimes you're too direct. And I would lapse into these periods where I wouldn't speak up as much and would realize that I felt suffocated. And so then I would go back to speaking my mind again. And, and I would say that after a couple of cycles of that, I kind of stayed true to myself, even if it didn't sit well with the people who were hearing what I had to say. That's interesting. And when you think of that back early in your career, what advice would you give your younger self now, now that you've had the benefit of more experience and all of the research that's gone into your current practice and career? Yeah, the advice I would give to myself is definitely that you should always err on the side of authenticity. There are far too many boxes that we are taught we need to fit into. You know, this is what somebody who's good at this looks like. This is the kind of thing that we expect from you. You should always say yes when you're asked to do something. If you don't like something, that's okay. You should keep it to yourself and keep playing the game. And what I found is that the more I did that, the more unhappy I definitely was 
And what I needed to learn and that I did not know when I was young is that most of the time when other people have a criticism and feedback about how you are, what they're telling you is what they expect and what they're comfortable with. And it's less about you. And if I had known that then just, they don't like that I'm direct because it makes them uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong. I would have made a different kind of progress, I believe, with my career. I probably wouldn't have waited until I was 40 years old to make a big change. I probably would have done it a lot sooner. So I think whenever you're torn between playing the game and living by the expectations or really being yourself, erring on the side of being yourself is so important for your own well-being, even if it doesn't always land well with the people who are around you. I think that's something to really highlight for everyone listening, the importance of being authentic and true to yourself. You're not fooling others and you're certainly not fooling yourself. That feeling of pain or deadness inside you, it stays with you and it's uncomfortable for a reason because it's trying to alert you to the fact that you violated a boundary of your own design. And it's so important to recognize and live, as Mackie's telling us, to make sure that we live with authenticity to the best of our ability each and every day. Absolutely. And I think it's such an important point. We are so wired to avoid being uncomfortable and to avoid making other people uncomfortable without realizing it's not our job on this earth to make other people feel good. It's our job to be ourselves. And sometimes the people around us need to see that even if it does spark discomfort and trigger them in some way, because it's through triggers that we learn a lot about ourselves if we choose to take them and learn from them rather than to become defensive and lash out. Mackie, what's your perspective on who's responsible for what triggers us? Honestly, I believe that we are responsible for what triggers us. Whenever something happens that sparks a quick reaction in us, whether it's anger or defensiveness or something else, it's really important to take a pause and just ask and reflect of ourselves I wonder why I'm triggered by this. And it's the answer is not always obvious. Sometimes it's that what the person has said is something that you've heard in some other way, shape or form that was meant to discredit you or invalidate you in some way. So you recognize it and it's an emotional reaction. There's nothing wrong with having the emotional reaction. It's just that it's usually for our own benefit that the trigger comes up and we tend to be defensive and to get into it with the person who has triggered us rather than taking a pause to go, okay, now why does that bother me? What is it about this statement or this comment that has elicited this reaction in me? So we are ultimately responsible for how we choose to react and we can react in a way that potentially could spark further conflict or we could react in a way that's really for our own learning and something that we can take forward with us going forward, just that awareness of, oh, I need to be on the alert for things like this because clearly they trigger me in some way. Somewhere along the way, I, I think it was in high school, I latched onto the metaphor that a pearl is created through an irritant that occurs in a clam. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, gosh, maybe these things that irritate me are, have a message that is something more important than just the initial emotional reaction. Absolutely. Yes, I really believe that. And sometimes I believe that there are certain people who tend to be that person, you know, we all know the difficult person who seems to be the irritant for many of us. (laughs) And I truly choose to see those people as serving that purpose to alert a lot of different people to the things inside of themselves that need their attention or need to be worked on. And, or, you know, teach us about ourselves. When are you not standing up for yourself sufficiently? When are you allowing people to treat you like a doormat or to take advantage of you? That's not about that person. That's actually about your own, you know, whether you're enabling that 
because you want to keep the peace and you don't want to rock the boat, or if you're going to stand up for yourself and just say, you know what, this can only happen if I allow it and to do something about it. You've got an interesting academic background. It was in biology and genetics. Is that right? That's right. Yep. What are some metaphors that help you with your understanding of the importance of mindset or how to influence or control our own mindsets that might be influenced or enhanced through your academic study of biology and genetics? I'll have to definitely think about the science part, but I do know that for me, because my graduate degree was in genetic counseling, and especially in genetics, usually when someone comes to see a genetic counselor, it's not a good thing, right? It's You're not being sent there because there's happy news to be shared. You're being sent because there's a risk that needs to be addressed. And those people are often in a bit of a crisis mode emotionally. They're scared. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's very complex information that needs to be shared with them around the genetics piece, which is difficult for the average person to grasp. It's very abstract. There's a lot that goes into it. And one of the things that genetic counseling teaches you to do as a practitioner is to be very quick on your feet in situations where there's a lot of emotions at play and to also be able to take complex and complicated processes and to make them easily consumable. And I think the mindset of all of us and the way that we are programmed to think and behave the way we do is kind of similar. The metaphor is like to genetic comparisons to genetics in that way. And then it is really complex and it's not the easiest thing to just change the way that you think and to change the way that you behave. So I believe that my training in that space actually set me up really nicely to help people break down how to make these changes to the way they think and operate accessible and consumable and actionable in a way that maybe it's harder to grasp just by hearing some advice from somebody. I think those are really interesting observations. I think that the ability to take something that is genetic, some sort of genetic code or some sort of, some people call it a flaw, and be able to explain it in a way that gives them the information without making them feel bad or blame themselves or feel guilty for something that really wasn't within their control. How often are some of the things that happen to us in life just that way, in a circumstance, and it wasn't of our doing, and we now need to get out of the blame game, especially with ourselves, and get on with things to improve the situation? Absolutely. That is very fair. I think a lot of us spend way too much time in self-judgment and self-criticism around the way that we are without that exact understanding, which is, you know, who you are is awesome. It's the things that are not working for you that we need to change, but we need to do that in a way that preserves or creates compassion for yourself in the process. One of the titles of your chapters falls right into line with this. It's don't, it's called don't just pray, row the damn boat. (laughs) And I think what you're getting at is it's important to to have your meditation practice and your inner world elements lined up, but also you need to take action in the physical world. You need to take action to improve your situation, get the job you want, make sure you have the level of communications you want, even have the level of intimacy and, and closest relationships with your, your spouse and your partner and your children and friends who you want to have in that inner circle. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we cannot, we're living in an interesting era where I think it's both a blessing and a curse. There's so much information about mindfulness and spirituality and thinking positively 
you know, and, and manifesting what you want, which I think is great. I think it's a very good place to be. It's optimistic. The challenge is that I think at times it discourages people from the action piece of it. You know, there's a lot of people who think if I, you know, write, just write down what I want so many times a day and I meditate on it for so many minutes a day and I just stay calm and positive that everything that I want is going to come to me. And I just don't see the world that way. It's not my experience. It's not what I observe in others. Those pieces are important, but we also don't want to cross over into a space of toxic positivity where we deny anything that we feel that is uncomfortable or negative and, and, and berate ourselves. Oh, I can't be in that space because if I'm there, then I can't really create what I want. That's just not true. We have to be in those spaces and places to know what's no longer working for us in order to work towards what we want. And then we've got to start taking those steps. And the, the place where people tend to get overwhelmed is that there's usually a fairly big delta between where they are and where they want to go. And it feels like such a huge gulf that they don't know how to cross it. When the reality is, it just takes some smaller, what feel like very small steps in the beginning that are outside of your norm. So you can kind of build up that mental muscle to operate in a different way and to overcome fear in small steps, overcome your fear of speaking up in small steps, be more confident about asking for what you want, etc. There's so many places where that applies. And then it's exponential. What happens from there becomes exponential. And all you ever have to know is what's the next step that's right in front of you. You don't have to know how to get from where you are to where you're going. That's where people, I think, give up because they, they don't know how to do that, but they do know how to take the next step. So it's really just about you know you need to get to the shore, maybe you're lost at sea, but all you really need to do right now is just start rowing. And it's it's that's the comparison. Well put. I, I love the phrase toxic positivity as a way of saying to people, you've got an imbalance. Maybe it's like a chemical imbalance of too much of one reagent and you need to balance it out so that you're actually taking action along with having a positive mindset. Right. What's an example of an organization or leader of a small business that you've worked with who had an issue related to mindset that you were able to help him or her figure out and then take action in order to improve his or her situation? Yeah. So I worked with a great kind of business within a business. So this was a, a real estate example where mindset's very important in real estate. You are a commission-based earner. So you're basically making the money that you're working for, the deals that you get or the way that you live. And making sure that you have your head in the right place in your business dealings is incredibly important. And I was working with this amazing business owner, a very successful agent within a, a bigger framework, a bigger corporate real estate framework, who had a team of people, had been successful for, for a very long time, very sought after because her branding is excellent. She has a very high-end vibe. Lots of people with you know multi-million dollar homes want to work with her. And she's got a really diverse crew of agents on her team. And despite all of her success was in that space where she knew that she could grow, but there was some chaos around, you know, how do I let go of some of the things that feel like they have to be under my control? If I let somebody else go and have these initial meetings with these people that have big listings, what if they don't represent the brand? What if they don't have the answers they need? What if they can't close those deals? So she got to this place where she really felt like everything was on her. She had to be the face of the brand and be on all these different listing appointments and pull off these big events that she was so known for. And she was spread very, very thin, all while feeling like she could grow her business and take it to another level if she could just kind of get out of her own way around needing the control and the, the quest for perfection. 
that she was known for, but that in a lot of ways was actually standing in her way. And when I started working with her, we actually worked with her and her team as well. Some of the things that we worked on were this idea that it's only through giving others the opportunity and showing trust that you can actually get out of the space that you need to be in. And I know this is an incredibly hard thing for people who are small business owners, right? Like your blood, sweat, and tears has gotten you to where you've created the success that you have. And there's some rocky times in there. Sometimes you have team people that you've hired that are aligned and people that aren't. There are definitely times, and there were, there were times here where I said, you know, there's probably a couple people on your team that need to not be here anymore, and you know that. And, and she did, but it was a very difficult decision to how do I decide who gets who needs to go? Maybe it's because I haven't been a good enough leader, and that's why they haven't basically grown to where I hoped they would. So there was just a lot of this excessive burden of responsibility where really in order to successfully continue to grow, you've got to learn how to be a co-creator, not just the person who is the creator and the founder and the CEO, but somebody who trusts yourself enough to bring on people who can help you grow and go to where you want to go and to be very clear about that. So I think the other challenge that we faced was, you know, she was the mastermind. So everybody wanted her input all the time and, and didn't necessarily have autonomy of thought. They just would go check with her. Well, this is, this is what I think we need to do. What do you think? Instead of saying, here's what I propose we do. And I would like to be a part of making us go to this next level. How can we get to the point where you trust me to do that? So we worked a lot on letting go, giving others the opportunity, being willing to clean house when it was necessary. And the result was that, you know, it took her some stops and starts to get that going. But about 12 months after we started working together, she made some changes to the structure of her team and the way she was operating. And her team did $30 million more in business. Well, that's a significant and measurable difference. It really was. And it was mostly just around these smaller things, the, the more subtle shifts around being willing to say what you need, being willing to rely on others, you know, taking yourself up a level. It was all things like that that made such a big difference. What I really appreciate about that example, Mackie, is how there were so many small decisions and practice changes that took place during that year that laid the foundation for the breakthrough that eventually came when people were starting to take more responsibility, being able to run things, not just one step at a time before checking in, but probably running entire processes in order to help the business move its goals forward. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a huge piece of it. And it takes a little bit of time because you really got to build up. Again, it's, I always refer to as this mental muscle memory that you know, you can't get up off the couch and go run a marathon if you've never run before. And with a lot of these things, these are deeply ingrained programmed beliefs and behaviors that we have that we've never tried to operate a different way. So we've got to give ourselves time to build up that memory, that muscle memory, and to be able to take on those bigger and bigger tasks. And it takes those smaller steps that once you get better and better at it, and you become less hesitant about taking those steps that need to be taken, you start making bigger and broader decisions. And then that's when, you know, the breakthrough happens or when you see, oh, wow, I can look back to six months ago and feel like I'm an unrecognizable compared to where I was then. Mackie, are you saying that this realtor who ran this very successful business had been indoctrinated into thinking small and thinking in terms of only doing things herself for more than a year and you're able to make that change in just a year? Yeah, absolutely. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? But that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it because I really believe, and you know, for myself, it took some trial and error, which is something that I share in my book because it wasn't quick like that. But I realized once I got out of where I had been, 
that, wow, this can really actually happen pretty quickly if you have somebody who can help you identify your blind spots and where you can get kind of the most bang for your buck in terms of the effort that you put in. And it absolutely, though, takes a willingness on the person who's on the receiving end to do that work. Because the only thing that a coach or somebody like that can do for you is kind of show you, hey, here's what I believe you need to do. But ultimately, you're the one who has to do it. So if you do do it, yeah, it can go fast. It's like even with physical training, nobody can do the crunches for you. Nobody can run the laps for you. Right. Yeah. You can have somebody who's like the greatest coach in the world, but if you won't do what they tell you, then it's nothing's going to change. Yeah. The benefits will be limited. (laughs) That's right. That's absolutely right. (laughs) Maggie, who do you think of when you think back as to who led you to understand the power of and how transformational coaching can be? What was the relationship like that you had that let you experience it, not just understand it mentally? When I think about that, I really believe it was a mentor that I had in my corporate life who I still have a ton of respect and stay connected to today because he really acted as that person who could see in me things that I couldn't see in myself yet. And I really think that that is one of the most sacred things about having a coach who's aligned to you is that they really can see your potential in a way that you can't. You see yourself through the lens of limitation. Other people don't have your biases, so they can see your potential much better than you can. And he was the epitome of that for me. He followed my career very closely. He was very high up in the organization and he kind of took me under his wing. And at different points in my career, when I was struggling, I would go to him and and he would be able to say to me, you know, so as an example, when I started in the healthcare IT industry that I was in for 13 years, I kind of got in on the merits of my genetics background and was a bit of a bit of a domain expert and had kind of taken that as far as I could And he was the one who said to me, you know, you have a choice to make. Either you can stay a domain expert and kind of play in this small sandbox, or you can go on the career path and really grow your career and kind of rise through the ranks in the organization. That kind of took me by surprise because it wasn't something that I had really considered. But when I really thought about it, I thought, yeah, there is a decision to be made here and there isn't necessarily a right or wrong answer. So I believe that's the other thing that hangs people up is, you know, what if I choose the wrong thing, which you can't do, by the way. And I made a decision to, you know what, this person believes in me and I have a lot of respect for him. So I'm going to go on this career path. And he continued to be a person like that, who at critical times in my career, when I was kind of stagnating and maybe wasn't aware of it, he could see it. And then he would challenge me to kind of take the next step and go to the next level. I think that all of us can look back and find people who were there and who saw more in us than we were seeing in ourselves, at Mm -hmm. least at the time. And it's so great to be able to recognize and acknowledge. If you were to reach out to this person, just send them a note to say, I really appreciate all that you've done. And I can trace back a lot of the success that I'm enjoying today based upon the conversations we had. What a difference that makes. It does. Yes. Yeah. So glad that you're able to share that now and recognize it as something that had an influence in your life and also inspired you to become that influence in other people's lives who are ready for to take that step. Yeah. And you know what? I'll just say really quickly, because I think this is something for people who have been where they are for a really long time, and maybe they haven't branched out or taken many risks or have kind of sat on something big that they really want to do. I think one of the most surprising things to me in the last few years, as I've gone on this new journey and left my corporate career behind is Man, sometimes people that you don't even know very well can end up being some of your biggest supporters. And I have found that to be incredibly humbling. 
we are sometimes so accustomed to hearing, you know, from the people around us who we start to dismiss, like, yeah, they always think I'm great. They have to say that. That's really nice, but it doesn't land quite the same way. And when you take a chance and like, let's say you're a small business owner, you have some big idea that you really want to pursue, but it's a little scary or you're not sure how to pull it off. I'm telling you that if you take those steps and you open those doors and expect for the right people to come in, they absolutely will. And sometimes people that you don't know very well, but that do who do understand you can end up being some of your biggest cheerleaders and supporters and connectors. And that is a truly enjoyable experience to be in that space and to have people who really do see what you're capable of, even when you're still scared, that can really help drive you over the finish line. I'll tell you what I was thinking of as you were sharing that, I was reflecting back on how many people I've known, as well as experiences I've had in my own life, where I was expecting help from one person because I thought that they had the qualifications, the background, obvious connections, but I was sharing it with a lot of people. And from the people who I least expected it, they were able to provide so much help, more help than I ever would have expected at the outset. And that's the kind of thing that happens when you put yourself out there and trust. And it's actually making a decision to trust and to believe that the help is available if you just ask enough and you ask the right people. Is that similar to the experiences you've had? Oh, absolutely. And I think that the what you said is so spot on that sometimes you have an idea of who you think that person's going to be. And then it ends up being someone else. And I would say, you know, even if you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't even have the first person I could ask because I don't have those people in my circles, even just the basically creating the space for that person by saying, it would be so great to meet someone who has these characteristics or these capabilities. And then just like you said, trust that that person's going to show up when the time is right. I'm telling you what, it sounds crazy, but it absolutely works. And that's another piece of this whole journey is, you know, really letting go of what you think you know and what you think you can and should be controlling and allowing some really good stuff that you can't even conceive of to come your way. Incredibly difficult for high achieving type A people who are driven by, you know, meeting goals and driving certain aspects of their businesses. But if you can just find some space to allow for some really good stuff to happen that you haven't over-engineered, that's where the magic really is. And what are two or three questions you might offer someone to use as a checklist to make sure that they're not over-engineering or overthinking it when they're creating the space? Yeah. So I think one thing that you should ask yourself is, why do I think that this is what I should be creating? Sometimes we are influenced by what we read and hear in our industries, whatever your business happens to be in, that this is the natural progression for a business like yours. These are the next things you should be aspiring to. And that, you know, just because you're a small business owner doesn't mean that you fall don't fall trapped to some of the same things that we do in the corporate world, which is this formula. You started here, you've reached point A, now it's time for point B, you should be aspiring to point C. And to check in and and take a beat and figure out, like, is that actually something that you want? Or do you just think that's what you're supposed to be doing? Because if it's what you think you're supposed to be doing and you don't have a lot of fire behind it, it's time to reevaluate why you're doing it. And then the next thing to ask yourself is when you envision this, are you actually thinking about the outcome beyond just what you think it is that you're going for? So an example would be, you know, if you have shiny object syndrome and you go after an idea because it's a good revenue generator, but it's not necessarily well aligned with what you're set up to do or even what you're really interested in, 
you could certainly become successful, but you'll have created a trap for yourself in that you're doing something because it's bringing in money, but it's not necessarily providing you with the kind of fulfillment that you're seeking. So a really good thing that you sh- we should always, always be doing is asking ourselves how we want to feel. It is always the case that when we succeed and are, are unhappy, that we have not spent sufficient time on that question. We just go, well, I'm assuming that when I reach this goal that I'm going to feel really good about it. But how many of us have reached goals and then we're just kind of like, okay, I guess it's time to set the next goal because it really didn't do anything for us fundamentally. So it's really important to ask, why do I want to do this? How do I think I'm going to feel if this is going to happen? And if you can't conjure up some really big and good positive feelings that come with it, you're not on the right path. What's an example of a way that you've used this in your own life? in order to achieve a goal that led to real satisfaction and fulfillment, Maggie? Well, so I think that writing a book was definitely something that I had said I wanted to do. And when I really started to think about what that took and did my research and started you know, looking at writing a nonfiction book proposal, I was like, man, this is really a ton of work. Is this, do I want this for the right reasons? And I sat down and I thought about it. Was I chasing something? Did I think that it made me, was a silver bullet for credibility? Was I doing it for some kind of external validation? And I sat with that for a while and realized when I got into, you know, how will I feel when I've accomplished this feat? Even if two people read this ever and and it doesn't ever go any further than that, how will I have felt about this accomplishment? And I realized that for me, it was about, trusting a little bit. I did feel that I needed to do it. I wasn't doing it for the wrong reasons. And I knew that how I was going to feel was that I had at least done something that could provide value to other people and that I would do my best to get it out there, but that I was going to detach myself from the ultimate outcome of what ended up happening with it, because that's where I choose to allow some good stuff to happen. Like I'll do what I can. I'll talk to great people like you who will give me an opportunity to do so and put my name out there in other ways and my message. But ultimately I haven't tied myself to some outcome that if I don't reach will somehow be some major disappointment to me. And that's an incredibly difficult mental adjustment to make is to not be so laser focused on an outcome when in fact when you can allow some space for what might come up and transpire, what may happen next is even bigger than you could have imagined. Gosh, I'm sure you know people as well as I do who set their sights on doing something and they use the wrong metrics to measure their success. And they thought, gosh, this certainly has to hit number one on Amazon in my category. And they wrote a terrific book. It's well-liked by thousands and thousands of people. It's got great comments. It's made the difference in so many lives but it didn't crack the top five. She, you know, I'm thinking one person who landed the top eight, it was seven or eight in their category. And she oh. just felt crushed. <laughs> it's uh-huh. like, oh, no, no, no. Exactly, exactly. But you know, that's, that's one of those constructs that we are told that things that do really well, like that inherently means they have a lot of value, which, you know, I think we've all seen like a critically acclaimed movie or maybe read a book that got a lot of accolades and we're like, wait, what? I didn't feel that way about it. You know, I don't get it. And we have to understand that those are still subjective measures. And then the, the measurement, the numbers, the metrics, things that are tangible are not the things that bring fulfillment. And I think that's an incredibly important point to make to people who are very driven to accomplish goals that they can check off of you know, their list or see the number of zeros in their bank account is that's all. It's not that it's meaningless. It's great. But those are ultimately not going to be the things if you don't have the real reasons and the value behind it that ultimately going to make you happy. 
in your book, you talk about three ways that fear makes you its bitch. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I wanted to make sure I had the word in that correct. Um, and you spoke about failure, loss, and control. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that and give it some context, given what we've just spoken about? Sure. So yes, I believe those that failure, loss, and control are the three illusions we have that are fueled entirely by fear. And failure, I think, is one that most people can relate to. It's that fear of failure. I want to do this, but I feel like I can't. I can't pull it off. What if I don't pull it off? I'll be humiliated. People will laugh at me. You know, maybe this person who had the aspiration to be number one on Amazon, you know, felt crushed because she thought it meant that her book wasn't amazing or awesome. And failure is something that exists. The fear of it is something that holds us back in so many different elements in our lives, interpersonal relationships, our businesses, wherever it may, may show up. My favorite example for how that couldn't be further than the truth is anything that we rely on today that's been invented. I mean, vaccinations, medications, computers, cell phones, you know, the things that we rely on, electricity. How many times did someone have to try and fail to make any one of those things before they finally got to the point where what they created was usable to any of us. And I think when you look at the scientific community, it's a very different mindset because the idea is that you run experiments and you will fail time and time and time again until you, and you use all the information you get from every failure to inform your next move until you succeed. And so failure is really always an opportunity to learn and do better. And if we would just frame it that way for ourselves, we would be in a much better place. And instead of failure, maybe if we just called it getting results. <laughs> exactly. I think, yes, because you do get results. They may not be the ones that you want, <laughs> but they will inform the way you can get different ones next time. Absolutely. So the next one is control. So uh, loss, let's do loss next. So, so let's talk about loss. So to me, there's obviously a construct of loss that is very real. You know, we lose loved ones, we lose the people and situations, you know, I, this is not to in any way diminish those losses, which are real and should be grieved and are part of our experience. This type of loss I'm thinking about is more around for the average person that I worked with, I know it was very common for very smart, capable people to worry constantly about losing their job if I say this or do this, I'm going to lose my job. Or if I say this, I'm going to lose this person as a friend, or I'm going to lose my relationship. This idea that there's a move you can make that will ultimately doom you in some way is very constricting. We try very hard not to get ourselves into situations where we feel like we're taking a risk that leads to loss. But here's the deal. I think a lot of people have had a situation where something they've quote unquote lost, whether it's a job through a layoff or maybe a relationship, can look back in hindsight and see that it served them in some way for that thing, whatever it was, to exit their life. And unfortunately for us, because we sometimes don't make the decisions we know we need to make, then events kind of transpire in such a way to free you from that obligation. And sometimes that happens with work. You know, people who are miserable in their jobs for a long time end up getting fired or laid off. And even though that can be economically scary, it's a blessing in many ways for that person because it creates an opportunity to go and allow something better to come in. So that's how I like to reframe that fear around loss. Like, yeah, you will lose things and it doesn't mean that's not sad and you won't grieve it, but sometimes it makes space for something better to come in. And how about control? Control is just one of those things that we don't have. And I think the pandemic <laughs> that we're experiencing is a perfect illustration of that. You know, no matter how hard you've worked, no matter how many promotions you've gotten, no matter how much you do everything right, 
here's something that has just shown up to show you that you don't have control over anything. And it's this illusion that we labor under because I think it gives us a false sense of security that we can just have a say in the way that things are going to play out. But the challenge I have found with that is that we tend to be very limited and have tunnel vision around this thing that we're trying to create or control when the reality is if we would sometimes let go of that control a little bit, what comes in often is better than what we could have engineered because we only think we're capable of so much. This is kind of back to that coach example where we said, you know, sometimes people can see your your potential better than you can see it yourself. Same thing here. You're trying to control a very specific outcome, but your view of what should happen next is probably really small in scale considering what's actually possible. And so to let go of that control allows for better, bigger, maybe unseen opportunities to come your way if you can loosen your grip. I think that's well put and a really important reminder for people listening to check themselves with and to see if they're letting any of these three illusions, fear, loss, or control, dictate actions and hold yourself back because you have one of these three fears. Yes. I think it's a really good place to start because most people, fear is always going to be their number one issue and challenge to overcome. And, you know, I hate to break it to everybody. I think we know this. It's ever present. No matter what you do, fear is always going to be something that we have to overcome over and over again. But having these three things in mind as you're doing so, I think can really help you see where you tend to be risk averse or what you tend to be afraid of so that you can make some solid progress against it. Mackie, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? I'm ready. Great. So at the beginning of the interview, we talked about someone who influenced and inspired you, and you talked about Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah. When you were growing up, what's a song that inspired you? Oh my goodness, a song. Well, I love music, so it is really hard <laughs> to come up with one single song. Think about being a teenager in your bedroom during one of your 16, 17, 18 years old. Yeah. And what is it that you're playing? You know what? So the first thing that came into my head, and I think it's perfect, honestly, is Nirvana's Come As You Are. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> For obvious reasons. <laughs> yes. Perfect. If you could put up a slogan about your work on a billboard that small business leaders would see every day, what would it say? Oh man, you these are tough ones. Lightning round, huh? Basically, let, let's see. The slogan would be, your only job is to be the best version of yourself. Wonderful. What would you say is the best $100 purchase you've made in the last six months for personal reasons? Mm. Up to 100, not exactly, you know. Okay, somewhere in there. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know what? I'll say that it's a piece of furniture that I have in the sitting room. My master bedroom has a sitting room that has a fireplace and it's like a little haven for me. And I just bought this piece of furniture that makes me happy to look at and put my feet up on. And it has made a space of relaxation for me. It's a happy hassock. That's right. That's right. <laughs> now this one you're really going to love. What's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year? that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I think for me, that is absolutely the need to be productive. I have really let go of this idea that it's important to be productive. It's so much more important to have peace of mind. And I have learned, you know, I've been working on it for on myself always because I'm naturally type A to just take a deep breath sometimes and be okay with not doing anything and enjoying that rather than a lot of negative self-talk in my head about what I should be doing instead. And it has been 
really good for me during this big pause that we've all taken when there's so many things that have changed to be okay with just being still and being present. It has been such a gift. And I'm telling you what, five years ago, I could not have done it. person you were five years ago couldn't even imagine this. No, it would have been impossible. And just to clarify, you've given up the need to feel like you're always being productive. You haven't given up being productive. That's right. Exactly. So let's dive deeper into one particular topic, which is how you build an environment of success around you. When you're always looking at the success that others have had, it's fine to get ideas from, but what does it do to our mindset when we compare ourselves with the experiences others have had? Yeah. I mean, comparison is definitely one of those things that I think we've learned through social media is very negative. We don't tend to do positive comparisons. We tend to look at ourselves and what somebody else has done and to berate ourselves for what we should be doing or what we are afraid to do, what we could be doing. Comparison is not helpful. I always tell people, you know, if you see something that someone else has done that you would like to try, it's better to treat something as an experiment and see what feels good to you try it on for size. And if it doesn't work for you, that's okay. There is no such thing as any, a formula for success. I think the most successful people in the world that we look up to and that we recognize don't do things the way that anybody else does things. They do what works for them. And for some reason, we think that we're supposed to emulate what others have done that works for them when really what we're meant to do is find what works for us. And we can start that process by trying some things that other people have put out there and seeing what works and and see if that's a good fit. And if it's not, what would we rather do instead? In that moment, to go back to the trigger conversation, if we look at other people and we feel triggered by something because we feel like we're less than, I think it's important to examine that trigger. Is Are we being triggered because we feel like they have something that we want? Is it because they're doing something that we want to do? What exactly is the thing that's triggering the comparison? And how can you go and get that thing for yourself if that's what you really want? So then you kind of flip the narrative and you can use that to your advantage rather than as a negative. One of the other things that I really liked how you elaborated on in the book was looking at how, when, and where to share what your aspirations are. Mm -hmm. And specifically, sometimes we have friends who don't understand the career path that we've taken as small business leaders and their frame of comparison isn't helpful to us so that when we're sharing things with people who we've known for years and years and years, there's some things we could share that are understandable, but maybe we need to wait and incubate our ideas or have results that are easily shared or consumed by our friends before we share it with them. Or we look to have people who we have relationships with who understand things in their early stages, knowing that it can completely be changed, altered, or even dropped and it's still okay. Right. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I really believe that when you have a seed for an idea and it's important to you, we all go through this phase where we kind of incubate it. We kind of hold it close. We feed it and water it. And we give ourselves some time to think about, is this something that I really want to do? How does it feel to me? And it's when you share that too soon with the wrong people, when it's not quite formed enough, even in your own mind, that you're taking a risk. You're taking a risk that somebody else's fear, someone else's programming about around what is safe to do, what is smart to do, has the opportunity to pierce your idea and to deflate it very quickly when they're not operating from the same place that you are. You know, they're not inside of your experience. They don't really understand what you're trying to create. And often it's the people who are closest to us who know us in one context, 
who do not understand big changes that we want to make. And so it's more about protecting the idea until you feel really solid in it so that even if a bunch of people around you go, I think that's a stupid idea, you can say to your like, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. I know it's a great idea and I'm going to do it anyway. So basically it's kind of incubating and holding that idea close to you for long enough that it's safe from anyone else's doubts. And then the other side of that is you can and should find people to share with who you know will support it. And again, this kind of goes back to the earlier conversation around that might not be the people that you think of right off the bat. So sharing it with people who don't bat an eye, who believe in you, who think that no matter what you want to do, it's an awesome idea and you can pull it off is exactly the kind of fuel that you want to feed. So it's kind of like it's around avoiding the person who's going to naysay your idea and finding people who are going to bolster it, not to give yourself a false sense of security, but basically to not take the wind out of your sails at kind of the early vulnerable stage of your idea. Thank you, Mustavi. I just want to thank you so much for sharing with us on my quest for the best today. You've raised some really great ideas and started by bringing to mind Eleanor Roosevelt, who's well known for saying no one can make you feel inferior without your permission. Mm -hmm. You talked about erring on the side of authenticity and making sure that that's somewhere where we stay true to ourselves as one of the most important things to value. You've raised the phrase toxic positivity, where if people are just thinking and meditating and feeling good about something, but not taking action, it could actually lead to really unhealthy situations. You talked about how to make us feel less overwhelmed, even when we look at the distance and the gap between where we currently are and our goals. We talked about the importance of being sure to spend time with people who see more of our potential than we ourselves can. And the fact that it's important to have our own definitions of success. And no matter what's happening out in the world that we may feel quote unquote triggered by, we ourselves have responsibility as to how we respond to whatever stimulus is out there. You talked to us about the three illusions fueled by fear, failure, loss, and control, and how each of them truly is an illusion that keeps us in place. And by having these handles, we can make sure that we deal with the fears and take the information that they may be providing to us to be cautious, but not stopping us from taking action. And for these reasons and so many more, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today on my quest for the best. Thanks, Bill. I really appreciate it. It was really fun chatting with you. And I'm just super excited to uh, spread the message to anybody who needed to hear it. Well, Mackie, before we say goodbye for now, where can we find out more about you and your work online? You can find me at my website. It's just MackieMusavi.com. I know that's a mouthful, but I know you're going to share the spelling with everyone so that you can find everything about me there. That's right. And we're going to link to that in the show notes, as well as all your social media channels, as well as ways to buy the book. Mackie Musavi, author of The High Achiever's Guide, I want to thank you again so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Thanks so much, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. 
We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.